Volume Two, Chapter Nine of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume Two, Chapter Nine. Half England was desolate when October came and the equinoctial wind swept over the earth, chilling the ardours of the unhealthy season. The summer, which was uncommonly hot, had been protracted into the beginning of this month, when on the eighteenth a sudden change was brought about from summer temperature to winter frost. Pestilence then made a pause in her death-dealing career. Gasping, not daring to name our hopes, yet full even to the brim with intense expectation, we stood as a shipwrecked sailor stands on a barren rock islanded by the ocean, watching a distant vessel, fancying that now it nears, and then again that it is bearing from sight. This promise of a renewed lease of life turned rugged natures to melting tenderness, and by contrast filled the soft with harsh and unnatural sentiments. When it seemed destined that all were to die, we were reckless of the how and when. Now that the virulence of the disease was mitigated, and it appeared willing to spare some, each was eager to be among the elect, and clung to life with dastard tenacity. Instances of desertion became more frequent, and even murders, which made the hearers sick with horror, where the fear of contagion had armed those nearest in blood against each other. But these smaller and separate tragedies were about to yield to a mightier interest. And while we were promised calm from infectious influences, a tempest arose wilder than the winds, a tempest bred by the passions of man, nourished by his most violent impulses, unexampled and dire. A number of people from North America, the relics of that populous continent, had set sail for the east with mad desire of change, leaving their native plains for lands not less afflicted than their own. Several hundreds landed in Ireland about the first of November, and took possession of such vacant habitations as they could find, seizing upon the superabundant food and the stray cattle. As they exhausted the produce of one spot, they went on to another. At length they began to interfere with the inhabitants, and strong in their concentrated numbers ejected the natives from their dwellings, and robbed them of their winter store. A few events of this kind roused the fiery nature of the Irish, and they attacked the invaders. Some were destroyed. The major part escaped by quick and well-ordered movements, and danger made them careful. Their numbers ably arranged, the very deaths among them concealed. Moving on in good order, and apparently given up to enjoyment, they excited the envy of the Irish. The Americans permitted a few to join their band, and presently the recruits outnumbered the strangers, nor did they join with them, nor imitate the admirable order which, preserved by the transatlantic chiefs, rendered them at once secure and formidable. The Irish followed their track in disorganized multitudes, each day increasing, each day becoming more lawless. The Americans were eager to escape from the spirit they had roused, and, reaching the eastern shores of the island, embarked for England. Their incursion would hardly have been felt had they come alone, but the Irish, collected in unnatural numbers, began to feel the inroads of famine, and they followed in the wake of the Americans for England also. The crossing of the sea could not arrest their progress. The harbours of the desolate seaports of the west of Ireland were filled with vessels of all sizes, from the man-of-war to the small fisher's boat, 
which lay sailorless and rotting on the lazy deep. The emigrants embarked by hundreds, and unfurling their sails with rude hands made strange havoc of buoy and cordage. Those who modestly betook themselves to the smaller craft, for the most part, achieved their watery journey in safety. Some, in the true spirit of reckless enterprise, went on board a ship of a hundred and twenty guns. The vast hull drifted with the tide out of the bay, and after many hours its crew of landsmen contrived to spread a great part of her enormous canvas. The wind took it, and while a thousand mistakes of the helmsman made her present her head now to one point and now to another, the vast fields of canvas that formed her sails flapped with a sound like that of a huge cataract, or such as a sea-like forest may give forth when buffeted by an equinoctial north wind. The portholes were open, and with every sea, which, as she lurched, washed her decks, they received whole tons of water. The difficulties were increased by a fresh breeze which began to blow, whistling among the shrouds, dashing the sails this way and that, and rending them with horrid split. And such were as may have visited the dreams of Milton, when he imagined the winnowing of the arch-fiend's van-like wings, which increased the uproar of wild chaos. These sounds were mingled with the roaring of the sea the splash of the chafed billows around the vessel's sides, and the gurgling up of the water in the hold. The crew, many of whom had never seen the sea before, felt indeed as if heaven and earth came ruining together, as the vessel dipped her bows in the waves or rose high upon them. Their yells were drowned in the clamour of elements, and the thunder rivings of their unwieldy habitation. They discovered at last that the water gained on them, and they betook themselves to their pumps. They might as well have laboured to empty the ocean by bucketfuls. As the sun went down, the gale increased. The ship seemed to feel her danger. She was now completely waterlogged, and presented other indications of settling before she went down. The bay was crowded with vessels, whose crews, for the most part, were observing the uncouth sportings of this huge, unwieldy machine. They saw her gradually sink the waters now rising above her lower decks. They could hardly wink before she had utterly disappeared, nor could the place where the sea had closed over her be at all discerned. Some few of her crew were saved, but the greater part, clinging to her cordage and masts, went down with her, to rise only when death loosened their hold. This event caused many of those who were about to sail to put foot again on firm land, ready to encounter any evil rather than to rush into the yawning jaws of the pitiless ocean. But these were few, in comparison to the numbers who actually crossed. Many went up as high as Belfast to ensure a shorter passage, and then journeying south through Scotland they were joined by the poor natives of that country, and all poured, with one consent, into England. Such incursions struck the English with affright. In all those towns where there was still sufficient population to feel the change, there was room enough indeed in our hapless country for twice the number of invaders, but their lawless spirit instigated them to violence. They took a delight in thrusting the possessors from their houses, in seizing on some mansion of luxury where the noble dwellers secluded themselves in fear of the plague, in forcing these of either sex to become their servants and purveyors till, the ruin complete in one place, they removed their locust visitation to another. When unopposed, they spread their ravages wide. In cases of danger they clustered, and by dint of numbers overthrew their weak and despairing foes. They came from the east and the north, and directed their course without apparent motive. 
but unanimously towards our unhappy metropolis. Communication had been to a great degree cut off through the paralyzing effects of pestilence, so that the van of our invaders had proceeded as far as Manchester and Derby before we received notice of their arrival. They swept the country like a conquering army, burning, laying waste, murdering. The lower and vagabond English joined with them. Some few of the lord's lieutenant who remained endeavoured to collect the militia, but the ranks were vacant. Panic seized on all, and the opposition that was made only served to increase the audacity and cruelty of the enemy. They talked of taking London, conquering England, calling to mind the long detail of injuries which had for many years been forgotten. Such vaunts displayed their weakness, rather than their strength. Yet still they might do extreme mischief, which, ending in their destruction, would render them at last objects of compassion and remorse. We were now taught how, in the beginning of the world, mankind clothed their enemies in impossible attributes, and how details, proceeding from mouth to mouth, might, like Virgil's ever-growing rumour, reach the heavens with her brow, and clasp Hesperus and Lucifer with her outstretched hands. Gorgon and Centaur, dragon and iron-hoofed lion, vast sea-monster and gigantic hydra, were but types of the strange and appalling accounts brought to London concerning our invaders. Their landing was long unknown, but having now advanced within a hundred miles of London, the country people flying before them had arrived in successive troops, each exaggerating the numbers, fury, and cruelty of the assailants. Tumult filled the before quiet streets. Women and children deserted their homes, escaping they knew not whither fathers, husbands, and sons stood trembling, not for themselves, but for their loved and defenceless relations. As the country people poured into London, the citizens fled southwards. They climbed the higher edifices of the town, fancying that they could discern the smoke and flames the enemy spread around them. As Windsor lay, to a great degree, in the line of march from the west, I removed my family to London, assigning the tower for their sojourn, and joining Adrian acted as his lieutenant in the coming struggle. We employed only two days in our preparations, and made good use of them. Artillery and arms were collected. The remnants of such regiments as could be brought through many losses into any show of muster were put under arms, with that appearance of military discipline which might encourage our own party, and seem most formidable to the disorganized multitude of our enemies. Even music was not wanting. Banners floated in the air, and the shrill fife and loud trumpet breathed forth sounds of encouragement and victory. A practised ear might trace an undue faltering in the step of the soldiers, but this was not occasioned so much by fear of the adversary, as by disease, by sorrow, and by fatal prognostications which often weighed most potently on the brave, and quelled the manly heart to abject subjection. Adrian led the troops. He was full of care. It was small relief to him that our discipline should gain us success in such a conflict. While plague still hovered to equalize the conqueror and the conquered, it was not victory that he desired, but bloodless peace. As we advanced we were met by bands of peasantry, whose almost naked condition, whose despair and horror told at once the fierce nature of the coming enemy. The senseless spirit of conquest and thirst of spoil blinded them while with insane fury they deluged the country in ruin. The sight of the military restored hope to those who fled, and revenge to place of fear. They inspired the soldiers with the same sentiment. Languor was changed to ardour, the slow step converted to a speedy pace, while the hollow murmur of the multitude, 
inspired by one feeling, and that deadly, filled the air, drowning the clang of arms and sound of music. Adrian perceived the change, and feared that it would be difficult to prevent them from wreaking their utmost fury on the Irish. He rode through the lines, charging the officers to restrain the troops, exhorting the soldiers restoring order, and quieting in some degree the violent agitation that swelled every bosom. We first came upon a few stragglers of the Irish at St. Albans. They retreated, and, joining others of their companions, still fell back, till they reached the main body. Tidings of an armed and regular opposition recalled them to a sort of order. They made Buckingham their headquarters, and scouts were sent out to ascertain our situation. We remained for the night at Luton. In the morning a simultaneous movement caused us each to advance. It was early dawn, and the air, impregnated with freshest odour, seemed an idle mockery to play with our banners, and bore onwards towards the enemy the music of the bands, the neighings of the horses, and regular steps of the infantry. The first sound of martial instruments that came upon our undisciplined foe inspired surprise, not unmingled with dread. It spoke of other days, of days of conquered and order. It was associated with times when plague was not, and man lived beyond the shadow of imminent fate. The pause was momentary. Soon we heard their disorderly clamour, the barbarian shouts, the untimed step of thousands coming on in disarray. Their troops now came pouring on us from the open country or narrow lanes. A large extent of unenclosed fields lay between us. We advanced to the middle of this, and then made a halt. Being somewhat on superior ground, we could discern the space they covered. When their leaders perceived us drawn out in opposition, they also gave the word to halt, and endeavoured to form their men into some imitation of military discipline. The first ranks had muskets, some were mounted, but their arms were such as they had seized during their advance their horses those they had taken from the peasantry. There was no uniformity, and little obedience, but their shouts and wild gestures showed the untamed spirit that inspired them. Our soldiers received the word, and advanced to quickest time, but in perfect order. Their uniform dresses, the gleam of their polished arms, their silence, and looks of sullen hate, were more appalling than the savage clamour of our innumerous foe. Thus coming nearer and nearer each other, the howls and shouts of the Irish increased. The English proceeded in obedience to their officers, until they came near enough to distinguish the faces of their enemies. The sight inspired them with fury. With one cry that rent heaven and was re-echoed by the furthest lines, they rushed on. They disdained the use of the bullet, but with fixed bayonet dashed among the opposing foe, while the ranks opening at intervals the matchmen lighted the cannon, whose deafening roar and blinding smoke filled up the horror of the scene. I was beside Adrian. A moment before he had again given the word to halt, and had remained a few yards distant from us in deep meditation. He was forming swiftly his plan of action, to prevent the effusion of blood. The noise of cannon, the sudden rush of the troops and yell of the foe startled him. With flashing eyes he exclaimed, "'Not one of these must perish!' and plunging the rowels into his horse's sides he dashed between the conflicting bands. We, his staff, followed him to surround and protect him. Obeying his signal, however, we fell back somewhat. The soldiery, perceiving him, paused in their onset. He did not swerve from the bullets that passed near him, but rode immediately between the opposing lines. Silence succeeded to clamour. About fifty men lay on the ground dying or dead. Adrian raised his sword in act to speak. "'By whose command?' he cried, addressing his own troops. "'Do you advance? Who ordered your attack? Fall back!' 
These misguided men shall not be slaughtered while I am your general. Sheath your weapons. These are your brothers. Commit not fratricide. Soon the plague will not leave one of you to glut your revenge upon. Will you be more pitiless than pestilence? As you honor me, as you worship God, in whose image those also are created, as your children and friends are dear to you, shed not a drop of precious human blood. He spoke with outstretched hand and winning voice, and then turning to our invaders, with a severe brow he commanded them to lay down their arms. Do you think, he said, that because we are wasted by plague you can overcome us? The plague is also among you, and when ye are vanquished by famine and disease, the ghosts of those you have murdered will arise to bid you not hope in death. Lay down your arms, barbarous and cruel men, men whose hands are stained with the blood of the innocent, whose souls are weighed down by the orphan's cry. We shall conquer, for the right is on our side. Already your cheeks are pale, the weapons fall from your nerveless grasp. Lay down your arms, fellow men, brethren, pardon, succor, and brotherly love await your repentance. You are dear to us because you wear the frail shape of humanity. Each one among you will find a friend and host among these forces. Shall man be the enemy of man, while plague, the foe to all, even now, is above us, triumphing in our butchery, more cruel than her own? Each army paused. On our side the soldiers grasped their arms firmly, and looked with stern glances on the foe. These had not thrown down their weapons, more from fear than the spirit of contest. They looked at each other, each wishing to follow some example given him, but they had no leader. Adrian threw himself from his horse, and approaching one of these just slain, "'He was a man,' he cried, "'and he is dead.' Oh, quickly bind up the wounds of the fallen. Let not one die. Let not one more soul escape through your merciless gashes to relate before the throne of God the tale of fratricide. Bind up their wounds. Restore them to their friends. Cast away the hearts of tigers that burn in your breasts. Throw down those tools of cruelty and hate. In this pause of exterminating destiny, let each man be brother guardian and stay to the other away with those blood-stained arms and hasten some of you to bind up these wounds as he spoke he knelt on the ground and raised in his arms a man from whose side the warm tide of life gushed the poor wretch gasped so still had either host become that his moans were distantly heard and every heart late fiercely bent on universal massacre now beat anxiously in hope and fear for the fate of this one man Adrian tore off his military scarf and bound it round the sufferer. It was too late. The man heaved a deep sigh. His head fell back. His limbs lost their sustaining power. "'He is dead,' said Adrian, as the corpse fell from his arms on the ground, and he bowed his head in sorrow and awe. The fate of the world seemed bound up in the death of this single man. On either side the bands threw down their arms, even the veterans wept, and our party held out their hands to their foes, while a gush of love and deepest amity filled every heart. The two forces mingling, unarmed and hand in hand, talking only how each might assist the other, the adversaries conjoined, each repenting, the one side their former cruelty, the other their late violence, they obeyed the orders of the general to proceed towards London. 
Adrian was obliged to exert his utmost prudence, first to allay the discord, and then to provide for the multitude of the invaders. They were marched to various parts of the southern counties, quartered in deserted villages. A part were sent back to their own island, while the season of winter so far revived our energy, that the passes of the country were defended, and any increase of numbers prohibited. On this occasion Adrian and Idris met after a separation of nearly a year. Adrian had been occupied in fulfilling a laborious and painful task. He had been familiar with every species of human misery, and had for ever found his powers inadequate, his aid of small avail. Yet the purpose of his soul, his energy and ardent resolution, prevented any reaction of sorrow. He seemed born anew, and virtue more potent than Medean alchemy endued him with health and strength. Idris hardly recognized the fragile being, whose form had seemed to bend even to the summer breeze, in the energetic man whose very excess of sensibility rendered him more capable of fulfilling his station of pilot in storm-tossed England. It was not thus with Idris. She was uncomplaining, but the very soul of fear had taken its seat in her heart. She had grown thin and pale, her eyes filled with involuntary tears, her voice was broken and low. She tried to throw a veil over the change which she knew her brother must observe in her, but the effort was ineffectual, and when alone with him, with a burst of irrepressible grief, she gave vent to her apprehensions and sorrow. She described in vivid terms the ceaseless care that with still renewing hunger ate into her soul. She compared this gnawing of sleepless expectation of evil to the vulture that fed on the heart of Prometheus. Under the influence of this eternal excitement, and of the interminable struggles she endured to combat and conceal it, she felt, she said, as if all the wheels and springs of the animal machine worked at double rate, and were fast consuming themselves. Sleep was not sleep, for her waking thoughts, bridled by some remains of reason, and by the sight of her children happy and in health, were then transformed to wild dreams. All her terrors were realized, all her fears received their dread fulfillment. To this state there was no hope, no alleviation, unless the grave should quickly receive its destined prey, and she be permitted to die, before she experienced a thousand living deaths in the loss of those she loved. Fearing to give me pain, she hid as best she could the excess of her wretchedness. But meeting thus her brother after a long absence, she could not restrain the expression of her woe. But with all the vividness of imagination, with which misery is always replete, she poured out the emotions of her heart to her beloved and sympathizing Adrian. Her present visit to London tended to augment her state of inquietude, by shewing in its utmost extent the ravages occasioned by pestilence. It hardly preserved the appearance of an inhabited city. Grass sprung up thick in the streets, the squares were weed-grown, the houses were shut up, while silence and loneliness characterized the busiest parts of the town. Yet in the midst of desolation Adrian had preserved order, and each one continued to live according to law and custom, human institutions thus surviving as it were divine ones. And while the decree of population was abrogated, property continued sacred. It was a melancholy reflection, and in spite of the diminution of evil produced, it struck on the heart as a wretched mockery. All idea of resort for pleasure, of theatres and festivals had passed away. Next summer, said Adrian, as we parted on our return to Windsor, will decide the fate of the human race. I shall not pause in my exertions until that time. But, if plague revives with the coming year, 
all contest with her must cease, and our only occupation be the choice of a grave. I must not forget one incident that occurred during this visit to London. The visits of Marivaux to Windsor, before frequent, had suddenly ceased. At this time, where but a hair's line separated the living from the dead, I feared that our friend had become a victim to the all-embracing evil. On this occasion I went, dreading the worst, to his dwelling, to see if I could be of any service to those of his family who might have survived. The house was deserted, and had been one of those assigned to the invading strangers quartered in London. I saw his astronomical instruments put to strange uses, his globes defaced, his papers covered with abstruse calculations destroyed. The neighbours could tell me little, till I lighted on a poor woman who acted as nurse in these perilous times. She told me that all the family were dead, except Marival himself, who had gone mad. Mad, she called it. Yet unquestioning her further, it appeared that he was possessed only by the delirium of excessive grief. This old man, tottering on the edge of the grave, and prolonging his prospect through millions of calculated years, this visionary who had not seen starvation in the wasted forms of his wife and children, or plague in the horrible sights and sounds that surrounded him, this astronomer apparently dead on earth, and living only in the motion of the spheres, loved his family with unapparent but intense affection. Through long habit they had become a part of himself. His want of worldly knowledge, his absence of mind and infant guilelessness, made him utterly dependent on them. It was not till one of them died that he perceived their danger. One by one they were carried off by pestilence, and his wife, his helpmate and supporter, more necessary to him than his own limbs and frame, which had hardly been taught the lesson of self-preservation, the kind companion whose voice always spoke peace to him, closed her eyes in death. The old man felt the system of universal nature which he had so long studied and adored slide from under him, and he stood among the dead, and lifted his voice in curses. No wonder that the attendant should interpret as frenzy the harrowing maledictions of the grief-struck old man. I had commenced my search late in the day, a November day, that closed in early with pattering rain and melancholy wind. As I turned from the door, I saw Marival, or rather the shadow of Marival, attenuated and wild past me, and sit on the steps of his home. The breeze scattered the grey locks on his temples. The rain drenched his uncovered head. He sat hiding his face in his withered hands. I pressed his shoulder to awaken his attention, but he did not alter his position. Marival, I said, it is long since we've seen you. You must return to Windsor with me. Lady Idris desires to see you. You will not refuse her request. Come home with me. He replied in a hollow voice. Why deceive a helpless old man? Why talk hypocritically to one half-crazed? Windsor's not my home. My true home I have found. The home that the Creator has prepared for me. His accent of bitter scorn thrilled me. Do not tempt me to speak, he continued. My words would scare you. In an universe of cowards, I dare think, among the churchyard dooms, among the victims of his merciless tyranny, I dare reproach the supreme evil. How can he punish me? Let him bear his arm and transfix me with lightning. This is also one of his attributes. And the old man laughed. 
He rose, and I followed him through the rain to a neighbouring churchyard. He threw himself on the wet earth. "'Here they are!' he cried. "'Beautiful creatures, breathing, speaking, laughing creatures. She who by day and night cherished the age-worn lover of her youth, they parts of my flesh, my children. Here they are. Call them, scream their names through the night. They will not answer.' He clung to the little heaps that marked the graves. I ask but one thing. I do not fear his hell, for I have it here. I do not desire his heaven. Let me but die and be laid beside them. Let me but, when I lie dead, feel my flesh as it moulders, mingle with theirs. Promise! And he raised himself painfully and seized my arm. Promise to bury me with them! So God help me and mine as I promise, I replied. On one condition— "'Return with me to Windsor.' "'To Windsor!' he cried with a shriek. "'Never! From this place I never go. "'My bones, my flesh, I myself are already buried here, "'and what you see of me is corrupted clay like them. "'I will lie here and cling here till rain and hail "'and lightning and storm ruining on me "'make me one in substance with them below.' "'In a few words I must conclude this tragedy. "'I was obliged to leave London.' and Adrian undertook to watch over him. The task was soon fulfilled. Age, grief, and inclement weather all united to hush his sorrows, and bring repose to his heart, whose beats were agony. He died embracing the sod which was piled above his breast, when he was placed beside the beings whom he regretted with such wild despair. I returned to Windsor at the wish of Idris, who seemed to think that there was greater safety for her children at that spot, and because, once having taken on me the guardianship of the district, I would not desert it while an inhabitant survived. I went also to act in conformity with Adrian's plans, which was to congregate in masses what remained of the population. For he possessed the conviction that it was only through the benevolent and social virtues that any safety was to be hoped for the remnant of mankind. It was a melancholy thing to return to this spot so dear to us, as the scene of a happiness rarely before enjoyed, here to mark the extinction of our species, and trace the deep unerasable footsteps of disease over the fertile and cherished soil. The aspect of the country had so far changed, that it had been impossible to enter on the task of sowing seed and other autumnal labours. That season was now gone, and winter had set in with sudden and unusual severity. Alternate frosts and thaws succeeded to floods, rendered the country impassable. Heavy falls of snow gave an arctic appearance to the scenery. The roofs of the houses peeped from the white mass. The lowly cot and stately mansion, alike deserted, were blocked up, their thresholds uncleared. The windows were broken by the hail, while the prevalence of a northeast wind rendered outdoor exertions extremely painful. The altered state of society made these accidents of nature sources of real misery. The luxury of command and the attentions of servitude were lost. It is true that the necessaries of life were assembled in such quantities as to supply to superfluity the wants of the diminished population. But still much labour was required to arrange these, as it were, raw materials. And depressed by sickness, and fearful of the future, we had not energy to enter boldly and decidedly on any system. I can speak for myself. Want of energy was not my failing. The intense life that quickened my pulses and animated my frame had the effect not of drawing me into the mazes of active life, 
but of exalting my lowliness, and of bestowing majestic proportions on insignificant objects. I could have lived the life of a peasant in the same way. My trifling occupations were swelled into important pursuits. My affections were impetuous and engrossing passions, and nature with all her changes was invested in divine attributes. The very spirit of Greek mythology inhabited my heart. I deified the uplands, glades, and streams. I had sight of Proteus coming from the sea, and heard old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Strange that while the earth preserved her monotonous course, I dwelt with ever-renewing wonder on her antique laws, and now that with eccentric wheel she rushed into an untried path, I should feel the spirit fade. I struggled with despondency and weariness, but like a fog they choked me. Perhaps, after the labours and stupendous excitement of the past summer, the calm of winter and the almost menial toils it brought with it were by natural reaction doubly irksome. It was not the grasping passion of the preceding year which gave life and individuality to each moment. It was not the aching pangs induced by the distresses of the times. The utter inutility that had attended all my exertions took from them their usual effects of exhilaration, and despair rendered abortive the balm of self-applause. I longed to return to my old occupations, but of what use were they? To read were futile, to write vanity indeed. The earth, late wide circus for the display of dignified exploits, vast theatre for a magnificent drama, now presented a vacant space, an empty stage. For actor or spectator there was no longer aught to say or hear. Our little town of Windsor, in which the survivors from the neighbouring counties were chiefly assembled, wore a melancholy aspect. Its streets were blocked up with snow. The few passengers seemed palsied, and frozen by the ungenial visitation of winter. To escape these evils was the aim and scope of all our exertions. Families late devoted to exalting and refined pursuits, rich, blooming, and young, with diminished numbers and care-fraught hearts, huddled over a fire, grown selfish and grovelling through suffering. Without the aid of servants it was necessary to discharge all household duties. Hands unused to such labour must knead the bread, or, in the absence of flour, the statesman or perfumed courtier must undertake the butcher's office. Poor and rich were now equal, or rather the poor were the superior, since they entered on such tasks with alacrity and experience, while ignorance and aptitude in habits of repose rendered them fatiguing to the luxurious, galling to the proud, disgustful to all those minds bent on intellectual improvement, held it in their dearest privilege to be exempt from attending to mere animal wants. But in every change goodness and affection can find field for exertion and display. Among some these changes produced a devotion and sacrifice of self at once graceful and heroic. It was a sight for the lovers of the human race to enjoy, to behold, as in ancient times, the patriarchal modes in which the variety of kindred and friendship fulfilled their duteous and kindly offices. Youths, nobles of the land, performed for the sake of mother or sister the services of menials with amiable cheerfulness. They went to the river to break the ice and draw water. They assembled on foraging expeditions, or, axe in hand, felled the trees for fuel. The females received them on their return with the simple and affectionate welcome known before only to the lowly cottage, a clean hearth and bright fire, the supper ready cooked by beloved hands, gratitude for the provision for to-morrow's meal. Strange enjoyments for the high-born English, yet they were now their sole hard-earned and dearly prized luxuries. 
None was more conspicuous for this graceful submission to circumstances, noble humility and ingenious fancy to adorn such acts with romantic colouring, than our own Clara. She saw my despondency, and the aching cares of Idris. Her perpetual study was to relieve us from labour and to spread ease and even elegance over our altered mode of life. We still had some attendants spared by disease, and warmly attached to us. But Clara was jealous of their services. She would be sole handmaid of Idris, sole minister to the wants of her little cousins. Nothing gave her so much pleasure as our employing her in this way. She went beyond our desires, earnest, diligent, and unwearied. Abra was ready ere we called her name, and though we called another, Abra came. It was my task each day to visit the various families assembled in our town, and when the weather permitted, I was glad to prolong my ride, and to muse in solitude over every changeful appearance of our destiny, endeavouring to gather lessons for the future from the experience of the past. The impatience with which, while in society, the ills that afflicted my species inspired me, were softened by loneliness, when individual suffering was merged in the general calamity, strange to say, less afflicting to contemplate. Thus, often, pushing my way with difficulty through the narrow snow-blocked town, I crossed the bridge and passed through Eton. No youthful congregation of gallant-hearted boys thronged the portal of the college. Sad silence pervaded the busy schoolroom and noisy playground. I extended my ride towards Salt Hill, on every side impeded by the snow. Were those the fertile fields I loved? Was that the interchange of gentle upland and cultivated dale once covered with waving corn, diversified by stately trees, watered by the meandering Thames? One street of white covered it, while bitter recollection told me that cold as the winter cloth to earth were the hearts of the inhabitants. I met troops of horses, herds of cattle, flocks of sheep, wandering at will, here throwing down a hayrick and nestling from cold in its heart, which afforded them shelter and food, their having taken possession of a vacant cottage. Once on a frosty day, pushed on by restless, unsatisfying reflections, I sought a favourite haunt, a little wood not far distant from Salt Hill. A bubbling spring prattles over stones on one side and a plantation of a few elms and beeches, hardly deserve, and yet continue the name of wood. This spot had for me peculiar charms. It had been a favourite resort of Adrian. It was secluded, and he often said that in boyhood his happiest hours were spent here. Having escaped the stately bondage of his mother, he sat on the rough-hewn steps that led to the spring, now reading a favourite book, now musing with speculation beyond his years, on the still unravelled skein of morals or metaphysics. A melancholy foreboding assured me that I should never see this place more. So, with careful thought, I noted each tree, every winding of the streamlet and irregularity of the soil, that I might better call up its idea in absence. A robin redbreast dropped from the frosty branches of the trees, upon the concealed rivulet. Its panting breast and half-closed eyes shewed that it was dying. A hawk appeared in the air. Sudden fear seized the little creature. It exerted its last strength, throwing itself on its back, raising its talons in impotent defence against its powerful enemy. I took it up and placed it in my breast. I fed it with a few crumbs from a biscuit. By degrees it revived. Its warm, fluttering heart beat against me. I cannot tell why I detail this trifling incident. But the scene is still before me. 
the snow-clad fields seen through the silvered trunks of the beeches, the brook in days of happiness alive with sparkling waters now choked by ice, the leafless trees fantastically dressed in hoar-frost, the shapes of summer leaves imaged by winter's frozen hand on the hard ground, the dusky sky, drear, cold, and unbroken silence, while close in my bosom my feathered nursling lay warm and safe, speaking its content with a light chirp. Painful recollections thronged, stirring my brain with wild commotion. Cold and death-like as the snowy fields was all earth, misery-stricken the life-tide of the inhabitants. Why should I oppose the cataract of destruction that swept us away? Why string my nerves and renew my wearied efforts? Ah, why? But that firm courage and cheerful exertions might shelter the dear mate, whom I chose in the spring of my life. Though the throbbings of my heart be replete with pain, though my hopes for the future are chill, still, while your dear hand, my gentlest love, can repose in peace on that heart, and while you derive from its fostering care comfort and hope, my struggles shall not cease. I will not call myself altogether vanquished. One fine February day, when the sun had reassumed some of its genial power, I walked in the forest with my family. It was one of those lovely winter days which assert the capacity of nature to bestow beauty on barrenness. The leafless trees spread their fibrous branches against the pure sky. Their intricate, impervious tracery resembled delicate seaweed. The deer were turning up the snow in search of the hidden grass. The white was made intensely dazzling by the sun, and trunks of trees, rendered more conspicuous by the loss of prepondering foliage, gathered around like the labyrinthine columns of a vast temple. It was impossible not to receive pleasure from the sight of these things. Our children, freed from the bondage of winter, bounded before us, pursuing the deer or rousing the pheasants and partridges from their coverts. Idris lent her my arm. Her sadness yielded to the present sense of pleasure. We met other families on the long walk, enjoying like ourselves the return of the genial season. At once I seemed to awake. I cast off the clinging sloth of the past months. Earth assumed a new appearance, and my view of the future was suddenly made clear. I exclaimed, I have now found out the secret. What secret? In answer to this question I described our gloomy winter life, our sordid cares, our menial labours. This northern country, I said, is no place for our diminished race. When mankind were few, it was not here that they battled with the powerful agents of nature, and were enabled to cover the globe with offspring. We must seek some natural paradise, some garden of the earth, where our simple wants may be easily supplied, and the enjoyment of a delicious climate compensate for the social pleasures we have lost. If we survive this coming summer, I will not spend the ensuing winter in England, neither I nor any of us. I spoke without much heed and the very conclusion of what I said brought with it other thoughts. Should we, any of us, survive the coming summer? I saw the brow of Idris clouded. I again felt that we were enchained to the car of fate over whose courses we had no control. We could no longer say, this we will do, and this we will leave undone. A mightier power than the human was at hand to destroy our plans or to achieve the work we avoided. It were madness to calculate upon another winter. This was our last— the coming summer was the extreme end of our vista, and when we arrived there, instead of a continuation of the long road, a gulf yawned, into which we must of force be precipitated. The last blessing of humanity was wrested from us. 
we might no longer hope. Can the madman, as he clanks his chains, hope? Can the wretch, led to the scaffold, who, when he lays his head on the block, marks the double shadow of himself and the executioner, whose uplifted arm bears the axe, hope? Can the shipwrecked mariner, who spent with swimming, hears close behind the splashing waters divided by a shark which pursues him through the Atlantic, hope? Such hope as theirs we also may entertain. Old fable tells us that this gentle spirit sprung from the box of Pandora, else crammed with evils. But these were unseen and null, while all admired the inspiriting loveliness of young hope. Each man's heart became her home. She was enthroned sovereign of our lives. Here and hereafter she was deified and worshipped, declared incorruptible and everlasting. But like all other gifts of the Creator to man, she is mortal. Her life has attained its last hour. We have watched over her, nursed her flickering existence. Now she has fallen at once from youth to decrepitude, from health to immedicinable disease. Even as we spend ourselves in struggles for her recovery, she dies. To all the nations the voice goes forth, Hope is dead! We are but mourners in the funeral train, and what immortal essence of perishable creation will refuse to make one in the sad procession that attends to its grave the dead comforter of humanity? Does not the sun call in his light, and day like a thin exhalation melt away, both wrapping up their beams in clouds to be themselves close mourners at this obsequy? End of chapter 9